I'm Jenny Dazals. I'm a financial planner who works with women and LGBTQ professionals. And a lot of the people I work with are self-employed and small business owners. And as a small business owner, I've had to figure out how to navigate the legal shenanigans of setting up our business and how best to structure our business. And to figure out these questions, Lisa and I turn to Jamie Santos for help. So Jamie is a native of the East Bay. She got her law degree at UC Berkeley, and she has been in legal practice for 20 years. And after working at top-tier law firms, she started her own law firm, specializing in estate planning, business law, tax planning, and nonprofit management. So we wanted to invite Jamie here to talk to us all things self-employed and small businesses. All right. So, you know, if we assume that we're talking to somebody who is, you know, self-employed, perhaps they're a solo practitioner, or maybe they have a few contractors, or maybe even an employee that they're working with, and they're thinking, you know, they've maybe just, they have their business or they're thinking about starting their business. What are some of the things that they need to make sure that they're putting in place as they start their business? Okay. So as you can imagine, the world of business is, is quite large. So I'm going to sort of narrow my answer down to someone who's going to be so starting a sole proprietorship. And that's, you know, a single person who's starting a business. They're starting a business where they're not going to create a separate entity like a corporation and work under that, but they're just sort of working for themselves. They want to be their own boss. And the steps for that are similar from state to state. And in California, it, it's pretty set. You know, the first thing you want to do is actually pick a name. You may want to use your own name. For example, my law firm uses my last name, or you may want to come up with a creative name for your business. So you think of the name and then uh, the next step, which some people don't tell you about, but I think is a good idea is do a Google search to find out if someone else is using that name, especially in your particular field or in your geographic area. You don't want to, you don't want to run into a case where you're, you think you've came up with, come up with a great name and then you get a cease and desist letter the next week from this company that's been in business for 10 years. So now you've got a name. If it's not your own name, what you need to do is register that name as a fictitious business name. And the place that you do that is with the county recorder. It's a one page application. You walk in, you put in the name, you give them 20 bucks, I think. And um, now you have a fictitious business name. Um, then you got to think about licenses, permits, uh, zoning clearances, right? So depending on what kind of business you are, you may work from home, you may need to work in an office, you may need a retail space. All this stuff is really dependent on what you are going to be doing for business. And so you have to think about licenses and permits. Now, a lot of people ask me, like, do I really need a business license if I'm going to be working from home? And my answer is, 99% sure the answer is yes. Unless you live in an unincorporated town or village, your city has regulations about running a business. So check in with the city you live in if you're working from home. Check in with the city that you plan on running your business in if it's not from home. And then another good idea would be to apply for an employer identification number. What that is is it's a tax ID number that's specific for your business. It helps to separate you from your business. So for example, if someone needs to give you a tax form at the end of the year, you don't have to go around giving everyone your social security number. You can give them your business's 
tax ID number and you know keep yourself a little bit separate. Let's see, finally, if you plan on having employees, since you mentioned employees, you would need to register in California with the em Employment Development Department, that's the EDD, and they're responsible for taking out from people's pay paychecks, they're responsible for taking out unemployment insurance, disability insurance payments, et cetera. So every time you hire a new employee, you need to reach out to them and let them know about that. Okay, got it. And that's the and that's the and that's the simple version. <laughs> that's the simple version. Okay, <laughs> so if I'm living in Oakland, I'm living in San Francisco, I'm living in the Bay Area, I got to make sure I have my business license. Okay, for sure, got it. Yeah. All right. So now I have. I've got my fictitious name, I've registered myself, but now there's a question of business structure and I've heard something yeah. about LLC. So when should I consider becoming an LLC versus just being a sole prop? Right, so LLC stands for limited liability company mm -hmm. and it's an entity, right? You are, it's something separate from you. So in California, the secretary of state regulates entities, whether they're limited liability companies, corporations, there are a few others to choose from. And in exchange for paying them a fee every year, the state provides you with a shield from liability. And what that means is that unlike when you're sole proprietor and you are not separate from your business, your LLC is now a separate entity from you. And what people are interested in doing when they seek out becoming an LLC is saying, well, if my LLC gets sued, I don't want people to reach, you know, my personal bank account. That's the main reason for setting up an LLC. Some people can't set up an LLC, so I just want to throw that out there. Professionals, anyone with a license, doctors, lawyers, architects, therapists have to have to start a different type of organization, but you can still get protection. And finally, the protection is not absolute. So let's say you're protected from things like if you made a mistake and someone lost some money, they could sue you. If you were really wrong and they won their lawsuit, they can have the assets you have in your business, right? They can have your cell phone, they can maybe have your desk, right? But you don't have a house in there, so they can't get to your house. But now let's say that in your business, you got a little extra one day and you actually attacked a client. Now, if you cause physical harm to someone and they can actually reach outside of your business and take your house. So just, you know, be cool and don't lose, don't lose it with your clients. I also understand like one of the biggest things that LLC protects you is if you had taken debt out and then you default on the debt. Yeah. Is that right? That's right. As long as you don't personally guarantee the debt, as long as the debt isn't purely in the name of your business, then you're not you're not on the hook for it personally. If, just if you have an LLC, if you have a sole prop, that's if a you have matter, an LLC, right? that's the reason. Right, exactly. Because there is no separation between you, you and your sole prop. You are one in the same. You're in the mirror. It's just Got you. It. If I'm starting a business with someone else, then what are my options? Right. So before we had entities like LLCs and corporations, we just had just general partnerships, right? You could you could get together with someone and create a partnership with a contract, without a contract. You could still do that. You could also have the option, again, with the state of California to create an LLC, but this time you can do it with another person, two other people, any number of people. This is called a multi-member LLC. And then, of course, you can start a corporation. With, with someone else. 
So there are definitely options. Some require this extra step with the Secretary of State. Some require just making an agreement with your partner. Gotcha. Let's talk about corporations. So there's regular corporations and there's S-Corps, right? So can you tell us a little bit the difference right. of those and what people should be thinking about? Right, sure. So as a regular corporation is, is known as a C-Corp. The C just stands for the section of the IRS code. This is sexy stuff here. The section of the IRS code is section C. So that kind of corporation is the one that you think about when you think about Coca-Cola, YouTube, Google. These are all C-Corps. They have shareholders and they have a board of directors, right? The shareholders own the company. The board of directors runs the company. An S-Corp is, everyone loves to learn about S-Corps because they probably have seen a lot of ads targeted at them as a small business person saying that it's time for them to become an S-Corp and they should look at it because they can save lots and lots of tax money. I'll tell you right now, I'm not a big fan, but it, it can work for some folks. So an S-Corp is not an entity. An S-Corp is a way of being taxed. So you can take a, a regular C-Corp, you can even take an LLC and you can go to the IRS and say, hey, I would like to be taxed like an S-Corp. And then the IRS gives you the ability, right? They, they, they place this label on you of S-Corp and now you're taxed as an S-Corp. Well, what's the difference, right? What's the difference in taxing? A C-Corp gets, you probably heard that C-Corps get double taxation and People complain about that sometimes, right? The corporation, because it's separate from its shareholders, the people who own it, the C-Corp pays tax on its profits. And then after its profits, it takes from its profits and pays dividends to its shareholders. So it basically gets taxed twice. And S-Corp is a great kind of hybrid company that allows you as either a single person or as a partnership to be treated sort of like a hybrid between a corporation and a regular company. So instead of being taxed twice, you're only taxed once. And there is a potential for savings by being an S-Corp. So these ads that are targeted at small business owners that are talking about how S-Corps are gonna save them money, how what are they talking about? Right, so when you are self-employed, you pay tax. Everybody who earns money, right, in the United States pays tax. Well, a self-employed person pays income tax and what the IRS likes to call self-employment tax. Self-employment tax is nothing more than Social Security and Medicare, and everyone pays it if they're earning money, right? Okay, now in comes the S-Corp. The way that the S-Corp is structured, you must become an employee of your own S-Corp and you remain a shareholder of your S-Corp. So you'll earn part of your money as an employee and you'll earn part of your money uh, as a shareholder earning dividends, or in this case, we call them distributions, right? Over here, you're gonna pay Social Security and Medicare tax, right? Self-employment tax. Over here, you're not. So the difference is how much can you get paid as a shareholder and save in those taxes? And therefore, if you're going to, if you're making, you know, 30 or $40,000 a year over in this bucket, you're going to save a few grand. The flip side, or at least the trade-off is that it's harder to run an S-Corp. There are more rules. 
and there's definitely more risk involved. The IRS pays more attention to S-Corps than they do to sole proprietorships. So even though the risk of audit is still low for, for most people, it's a little bit higher for an S-Corp than it is for a sole prop. So you have to weigh the, the pros and cons. You know, If you're going to be saving $4,000 a year, is that worth all the extra work that you have to do to, to save that $4,000? And for some people, the answer is yes, absolutely. I need those $4,000 to live on. And for other people, it's, you know, maybe maybe I should wait and think about this a little bit more. Sometimes there is a sweet spot um, in terms of like how much money your business is earning. So, you know, if your business is only earning forty or $50,000 a year, I would never advise you to start an S-Corp. I would say you're going to spend money and you're not going to make it back in the savings. On the other hand, once you get up to $80,000, $90,000, $100,000, then at that point, the scales start to tilt a little bit and you really could do some analysis and figure out if it's a good time for you to jump in the S-Corp pool. So, you know, I mentioned that what you're earning over here in this bucket, you're earning as an employee. Well, the IRS says, you know, so what's keeping you from like paying yourself $10 as an employee and taking everything as, di as distributions? Well, what's keeping you from doing that is the law. The IRS says you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. And even though they don't define what reasonable is, they tell you um, how you need to figure out what reasonable is. So they look at geography, they look at what it, what it is that you're performing, what your business does, do you have any employees who are also earning money for you? Or are you the only person responsible for, for making the money in your company? So, you know, having something like earning 10,000, paying yourself out 90,000, that might be reasonable in some universe where you do very little and you hire lots of other people to run your company. But in the case we're talking about now, where we're talking about one person or maybe two or three people in a in a multi-member S-Corp or multi-shareholder S-Corp, it's never going to be like that. People are going to be at the 50% threshold or even more, 60%, 70% salary versus distributions. So when you so now this pot over here where you're saving money is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Gotcha. But it does work. I mean, it can work. Gotcha. Well, and then tell me too about yeah. the California franchise tax for S-Corps. Right. So these extra costs, right? When you're a sole proprietor, you're filing one tax return with the IRS and one tax return with California. So now when you bring in this S-Corp idea, you, you're already an entity, right? You're an LLC that became an S-Corp. That, that S-Corp now has to file its own tax return. And it has to file a federal tax return. It has to file a California tax return. So there's extra expense there. It also it doesn't pay federal tax, but it does pay California tax. And the way that that California tax is calculated is there's a minimum of $800. That's the FTB fee that you're talking about, right? It can never be any less. If your S-Corp makes $0, how much do you pay? $800. If your S-Corp makes about $60,000, how much do you pay? $800. And the more that it makes, the higher that amount goes. I think the threshold is around 66000 After that, it pays 1.5% on every dollar that you earn. So more taxes. Gotcha. So more you taxes. might save on self-employment yeah. tax, but you're going to pay on this franchise tax, which is extra for being an S-Corp, as well right. as the added right. tax filing expense 
as well as just the headache of having to figure out how to pay yourself this salary, which you might need to set, you'll have to set up payroll to do that, as well as my understanding is you have to be more mindful about how you expense things, right? Like I've heard something about an accountable plan. Can you tell us about that? What comes to expense, like as a solo practitioner, you just expense things, right? You just write things off. But when you're an S corp, you have to do something different. Yeah, that's right. So, so when you're a sole proprietor, let's say, you know, you drive your car for business and um, you keep track of your mileage. And at the end of the year, when you're filling out your tax return, you get to take a deduction for the value of that mileage that, that you drove. You don't have to have your company pay you back for the miles that you drove or pay you back for the gas, but you, you get a deduction for it. So now, because you're not actually self-employed when you own an S-corp, right? You're an employee and you're a shareholder. You can't just deduct your your use of your car because it doesn't belong to the S-corp. Instead, you need to ask for a reimbursement. So imagine you, you work for a company, right? It's not your company. You're working for Google. Google says, hey, Jen, I want you to like take your car and go run this errand and let me know how many miles you drive and we'll pay you back on your next paycheck, right? So you're getting a reimbursement for that. It's exactly what you need to do now for your own S-Corp. So an accountable plan is nothing more than a reimbursement plan. It's called an accountable plan by the IRS. And you've gotta have certain things in place for the IRS to recognize it as valid. I won't go into the list, but you know, it, basically you need rules and, and policies in writing and you need to make sure that your employees are asking for their money like every month or every two months. You can't wait till the end of the year and pay yourself for all the miles that you drove. So it's extra bookkeeping on the part of you as an individual. It's extra bookkeeping on the part of you as, as your S Corp. But the good news is if you have the, if you have the money and the S Corp to pay you back, it's one way of getting money out of the S Corp and into your pocket so that you have a little bit, you know, in addition to the salary that you're earning, you can be reimbursed for your um, home office expense. You can be reimbursed for the business use of your phone, for the business use of your car. If you're, if you make a mistake and take a client out for a business meal and you use your personal credit card, it's a way to get reimbursed for that from your, from your S Corp. So it has its it has its benefits. It is more work. It is more work, just like anything else. With, <laughs> okay, so it sounds like with the S corp, yes, the the main benefit is you can save potentially on self employment tax, but there's all of these other headaches. Yep. So if you were talking to somebody, I think you mentioned some dollar amounts, but like what would be in total net income of a small business? At what point do you think it makes sense um, to consider an S corp? Yeah, if you are a single person, right? So if you were a single member LLC and you are thinking about becoming an S-Corp, I'd say if you've got consistent profits of about $80,000 a year, go talk to your CPA, go talk to a business attorney about figuring out if, if it's the right time for you. You don't need an attorney to do it. It's an election that you can have your tax preparer or your CPA bake, or you can do it on your own but definitely get some advice about what the rules are. But about around 80,000. Let's switch topics. Yeah, let's switch topics. Expense deductions, you know, whether you're a sole prop or an S-corp or whatever, right? Like, and you're doing an accountable plan. There are expenses, the, the... Although there are a lot of headaches to owning your own business, <laughs> the positive is that <laughs> you can expense the cost of doing business, and this can dramatically help your tax situation. So what 
do you see are the most frequently missed opportunities? Right, right. So I feel like there are at least at least two different kinds of, of small business owners, right? There is the person who thinks that everything is deductible, including my sandwich that I eat at my desk during the day, and the person who thinks the only thing deductible is rent, right? Or maybe the cost of a computer that I do nothing with except for my business. And the truth of the matter is, is that it's somewhere in between there. And I like to tell people what the actual law is because I find it helpful when they know what the law is. So uh, according to the IRS code, in order for an expense to be deductible as a business expense. It has to be both ordinary and necessary for your business. That is the definition. So what does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different businesses, right? But the way that I like to think about it and that I advise people is to think very, very expansively about what what is ordinary and necessary for your business. So something that's ordinary just means that everybody who is an attorney or everyone who's a financial planner can expect to have this kind of expense. And something that is necessary is something that is particular to the way that you do something. So the example I like to give is let's say you run a yoga studio. What's ordinary expense for a yoga studio? You've got rent, you've got yoga mats, you've got water, you've got statues, you've got incense, you've got candles. These are all ordinary. You see them in every single yoga studio. And you can expect to be able to deduct that. But now let's say you've jumped on the bandwagon and you now want to offer goat yoga at your yoga studio. You need goats, (laughs) right? And so you need to rent them, lease them, buy them. You need to understand goat behavior. So you might need to go to the petting zoo and pay $5 to get into the petting zoo, you may need someone to train you on how to use those goats. Now, not every yoga studio needs that, but you need it. It's necessary for what it is that you do. So what I tell people is think about not just who they are and what they do, but what's the whole story about what it is that you provide, right? What is it that you're providing to your clients? You're sharing your experience with them. You're sharing your knowledge with them. You're sharing your research with them. um, You're sharing a lot of things with them. Think about everything that goes into who you are in order to provide your clients the experience that they're having. It's your narrative, right? If you are ever unfortunately called to be under audit under the, to the IRS, just showing them their numbers, isn't going to help you. They're going to ask you questions about your about your business. You know, they're going to say, "What is this entry here for goat food? <laughs> I don't understand this." Right? And it's your responsibility to have that narrative and have that narrative ready to be able to explain to the IRS why that expense was necessary. So think about who you are. Come up with a narrative of of why you need these these expenses, and you'll find a whole bunch of expenses that you didn't realize you could deduct. So if you are a therapist and your clientele are children and you tend to go to Pixar movies a lot, and, and this happens to me every time I work with work with a therapist prof- professionally, I ask them if they've ever gone to see a Pixar movie and walked away going, you know, hey, I could use that in a session with 
you know, with little Susie or, you know, little Mark. And every single time they say, yeah, I do that all the time. Well, that movie now just became deductible and they hadn't thought about that before, but that's a tool that they're using in their therapy. So think about it expansively. Who are you? What do you do? What do you bring to your clients? And you'll find lots of expenses. That's great. That's really helpful. I haven't thought about that in that context. So is there like a percentage in which you will start raising red flags? So if you, let's just say you're deducting 80% of your business income, right? let's just pretend you earn 100K and you're deducting 80K. Like, is there a percentage in which it raises red flags or what raises red flags that could cause an audit by the IRS? Yeah, so I don't have an actual answer for that. And and for the, for the first question, you know, there are plenty of companies that don't make any profit. And what the rule, what the IRS rule is, is that if you don't show any profit for more than two out of five years, they can send you a letter and say, hey, we think that you're not actually a business. We think you're a hobby. But you can actually respond to that. And if you can show them facts and evidence that you are actually a business, maybe you're just, you know, ramping up, or maybe you're having a, a, a bad few years, they're, they're not going to, you're not going to get in trouble. So things like, you know, how, how do you prove you have a business? You have a website, you have business cards, uh, you have advertisements, you buy things for your business, and you really try to, you really try to sell them or try to your services. So the answer to like, you know, how many expenses can you take is, well, the IRS says you have to take all the expenses you, you have, like you can't hide them in order, you know, not only do you have to let them know about all of the income, you have to let them know about all of the expenses. But your second question about like in particular categories, there might be, there might be red flags and the categories of expenses that the IRS is most concerned about because they get abused the most are things like travel, meals. And so I have experience talking with IRS agents where they've told me that the reason the audit was happening was because this particular person had almost 40% of their, spent almost 40% of their uh, income on travel in that particular year. And that set up a red flag. Now that's not enough. I don't want to scare people, right? That's not enough necessarily to become, to, to become a target for the IRS. You still have to have bad luck, right? You still have to have your name pulled out of a hat, but that's what puts your name in the hat. So travel meals, it used to be home office though. I think COVID sort of sort of changed the way we think about that. Everyone, including me, has a home office, right? So I think the IRS has sort of taken their foot off of that pedal for a while. But just uh, again, if as long as you have your narrative and as long as you have the proof that you spent the money and what you spent the money on, you will survive an audit. And it could be very, very quick. If the, if the IRS is interested in so let's say the IRS is interested in this $20,000 trip that you took in 2023. And you took that trip and it was for business and you have the receipts and you have in your itinerary all of the business contacts that, that you met with while you were on your trip. Um, 
that'll be the fastest audit in history. You'll be out in a few minutes because you'll be able to just show them that it was that it was valid. So I wouldn't worry about it so much. Okay, that's helpful. All right, last question. It's kind of a one-off, but I do think that there are people who do this, including myself. But if someone is planning on, you know, they have, they're running a business and it, and it operates in the U.S. and their clients are in the U.S., but they're traveling a lot. You know, they're, they're part of the reason they're doing this is for lifestyle flexibility. They're spending a big chunk of their year abroad, or maybe they even consider themselves residing abroad. Is there anything that they should be aware of running a U.S. business like this from a legal or tax standpoint? Well, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, the, the dyed in the wool rule is that no matter where you earn your money, if you are a U.S. citizen or a U.S. permanent residence, resident in the United States, no matter where you earn your money, it's going to be taxed by the U.S. So um, if you have your business, but you're off in um, Athens, uh hanging out there for a few years you still have to file tax returns and if you're earning if you're earning income that's taxable that income will be taxed by the u.s where it gets complicated is if it's also being taxed by the place that you're living or traveling in you may not necessarily be double taxed so for example i said athens right greece and the united states share a tax treaty where they each say, well, hey, I, uh, if, if someone's paying U.S. tax on Greek income, uh, we'll give them credit for it. And the U.S. says, okay, well, if you're, if you're paying Greek income tax, we're going to give you credit for that. So that's the good thing about it. And, and generally, you find out pretty quickly which countries around the world have, have higher income tax rates right, than the United States. Usually we're on the low end compared to especially European countries. So yeah, you'll have to file a tax return and you have to pay tax. And it just matters where you where you paid tax first. If you already paid it where you're living, the the, the U.S. will give you credit. All right. Okay. All so right. speaking of abroad, I know that a lot of self-employed folks may hire people who are contractors who live abroad. Maybe they found them through Upwork. Maybe it's through some. Maybe it's a virtual assistant or a product designer who lives abroad to support them in their business. What steps? What things should they be considering? Okay, so you're a U.S. business and you've hired a contractor and they're not physically in the United yes. States, right? Okay, so first thing you need to know is, are they a citizen of the U.S. or are they, quote unquote, a foreigner when it, co when it comes to income tax, right? So anyone who's not a citizen or a permanent resident, resident of the United States is considered a tax foreigner. If they're a U.S. resident, you have to collect a W-9 from them, just like if they were physically in the United States. A W-9 collects their social security number, their address, and it's a way for you to be able to report how much you're paid, paying them if they've earned more than $600 during the year. And you report that to the IRS. The IRS is then expecting to, find, to, expecting to see a tax return from this, from this person, even though they're living abroad. And for the foreign contractor, the only difference is you want to collect a W-8 instead of a W-9. So if someone is a U.S. citizen, you get a W-9. If someone is a foreign citizen, you get a W-8. And depending on what kind of organization you are, 
you may have to collect withholding taxes yeah. from the U.S. citizen, but you would never have to do that from the foreign citizen. But the rules there are kind of complicated. Okay. The other thing I want to say is, is um, regardless of what your contractor is going to be doing and whether they're a U.S. citizen or a foreign citizen, I highly recommend always having a written contract. Mm. Um, it's it's going to benefit you multiple multiple times over. Mm -hmm. Number one, just to have clarity in what the expectations are with your contractor, mm -hmm. but also, especially in the state of California, the rules about independent contractors versus employees have shifted and become so strict in the last few years, you really, really want to make sure that you have a contract and that it, it is valid under, under California law. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jamie. This is really helpful. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jamie. Here are my big takeaways. So if you're self-employed or thinking about self-employed, you're going to want to be thoughtful about your business structure, as this has big implications on the legal and tax side of things. So the default for anyone starting is to become a sole prop, but I would advise that if you're serious about your business, even if it's just a side gig, um, it's worth considering whether an LLC makes sense for you. And that's because an LLC separates your business assets from your personal assets, and that can be very important in protecting you from financial and legal liability. As for S-Corps, so there is potential tax savings to be had by becoming an S-Corp, but there are also extra costs. So it, you're going to want to be making at least $80,000 in net income. That's net income after deducting all your business expenses to start for this to even start making sense. Regarding business expenses and what's tax, what's deductible, my biggest takeaway from Jamie was be expansive and how you think about it. So if spending money on XYZ can support the narrative of what you're doing with your business, then yes, it can be considered a business expense. Beyond these issues, there's also a lot of other issues that are probably top of mind for you as a self-employed person. These might be things like how do you best manage cash flow, especially when your income and your expenses are variable? Do you have a backup plan for emergencies, both personally and business-wise? How much of your profits should you be investing towards your business goals versus your personal goals? You might be thinking about, you know, how, what is the best way to save? If I'm self-employed, you've probably heard of SEPs, solo 401k, simple IRAs, which one is best for me? Tax planning. How do you project how much you ought to be paying in estimated tax? And how do you make sure you have cash flow to pay that? So you don't avoid a big tax surprise and not have cash to pay for that. Are you capturing all of the potential business deductions? What about the qualified business income deduction? Health insurance. How do I get health insurance if I'm self-employed and not working for someone else? So yeah, it, if you're your own boss, there's a lot of freedom in that, but there's also a lot more questions and room to optimize for that. If you want a sounding board to talk about any of these things, feel free to reach out to me. I specialize in helping self-employed women and LGBTQ make a plan for your money so that you can feel confident about your financial future while having the freedom to work and live on your terms. So please reach out and I'm happy to do a free consultation with you. Thanks. Mm -hmm.